Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say, nothing, because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the Mandarin Oriental. A shout out to a hotel that is, when you think about it, a destination in itself because of its location. You're right on the river and location, location, location. You can walk to the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, to the Washington Monument, to the Ford Theater, to the United States Capitol, to the Lincoln Memorial, to the White House. These are all great walks in under a half an hour from here and you get to see the city. Plus you get to get out in the water. How cool is that? And it's a dog-friendly hotel. When I travel around the world, I always want to get a sense of history. And when you think about the greatest memories that you have, and, and travel, by the way, by, by my definition, is, is an experience meant to be shared. One of my greatest memories happened over 40 years ago when I was in Europe and my dad came with me. And uh, we were, I was doing a story about the making, if you can believe this, of a movie called Rollerball with James Caan. And it was being shot at the Olympic Stadium in Munich. And uh, we finished shooting it. I had an extra day. And I said to my dad, who'd never been to Germany, where do you want to go? He said, I want to go... Auschwitz. I want to go to Dachau. Well, Dachau was in Germany. So I'll never forget this. We, we rented a Volkswagen. That's the only car I could rent. I mean, there's a lot of poetic irony there. but um, And we drove, but, and they gave me a map, a road map at the rental car. And, and Dachau wasn't on the map. They had taken it off the map. So we were driving around for an extra hour and a half, I know we were close to it. And finally, we pull into this town, and I saw some nuns walking down the street. I asked them, 
Are we in Dachau? They said, yes. And we got to the, to the concentration camp an hour before it closed, and we were the only ones there. And I'll never forget that experience of sharing that, that terrible moment in world history with my dad, and we were the only ones there to take it all in. And, and I came away from that saying, you know, if you can't remember the past, you're doomed to repeat it, the famous George Santayana quote. And so it was with a sense of uh, great excitement when I learned about the building of and then the opening of the Holocaust Museum right here in, in the United States. And joining me now, the museum director, Sarah Bloomfield, right here in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Y yes, and it's amazing to me, even to this day, how many people don't have a historical set of reference points or an understanding of what really went on back in the 40s. Well, Peter, you just hit on something I think that's really important, not only about Holocaust history, but history in general. Yeah. And with the emphasis in our country on STEM education, the humanities in general and history in particular is taking a hit. And I think we should ask, what kind of citizens are we developing in this country if they don't know something about the past? Because history is about not only what happened in the past, but who we are and what is our role in shaping the future. And that's exactly what the Holocaust Museum is about. I'm one of those people that, that, that and, I, and I know you're going to agree with me before I even say this, but you know, we're, we're living in an avalanche of technology. And I'm one of those people who believes that technology should never take precedence over the conversation. And the conversation needs to be about the past or you can't deal with the present. Absolutely. And while technology creates a certain kind of conversation, it also limits. So we hope that people come to our museum, step away from technology, step away from the speed and the pressures of the present, go back to a very important moment in history, really a watershed for human societies, and have a whole new set of conversations, sometimes with the people they came with, and sometimes even with strangers. And that's the point. I believe that the, the success, the true effectiveness of, of anything, especially a museum, is if it can be an effective storyteller. And that's what your museum is. It's storytelling. Absolutely. And we have a very big story to tell. And obviously, at one level, it's about something that Germans and their collaborators did to Jews and others. At another level, it's something that human beings did to other human beings. So it raises a lot uh, of questions. And provocative on that level questions. alone, you become open to more people hearing about that story. Absolutely. I mean, this is a human story. This is a, a, it's, the, the specifics of the Holocaust are obviously um, the systematic state-sponsored murder of six million Jews in this effort to wipe out an entire group of people solely because of who they were. But the history raises questions about why was that possible? What made it happen? What were the choices people made? Because the Nazis could not have done this alone. They couldn't have done it without a lot of help and a lot of acquiescence in Germany and throughout Europe. We're talking complicity. Absolutely. How do you, and, and, and I want to talk about this when we come back, but it's all about how you present the stories. Because when I was going to museums as a kid, you know, nothing was interactive. There was not storytelling. There were static exhibits on the wall and you couldn't touch, you couldn't feel, you couldn't interact. I know, and you know, that there are countless stories to be told to tell this terrible part of history. But how do, you, how do you present it? How do you tell it in a way that people can relate to it, that people can absorb it, and it, 
for me at least, more importantly, to be able to tell it to their friends. So in creating the museum, which was done quite brilliantly by somebody who came out of theater and someone else who came out of documentary film, so they thought about exactly that. This is a narrative. This is a story we want to take the visitor through from beginning to end. And the goal was to do it in a very sensitive way so that the visitor would go on a journey that would take them along almost as much as German society as and the victims went along. But they did it by personalizing the history so that the visitor can see themselves in the history. And that's, of course, what provokes questions. You know, it's, it's always something about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Let's get literal here. When I was in Dachau, I saw the shoes. And that's what did it for me. When Because I, I, I could relate to that, right? I mean, it was, like, it was so graphic and so intense that made me want to know even more who was in those shoes, what was their life, what were their hopes, their goals, their dreams, and what do we learn from that? And our museum has shoes itself. It's one of the iconic parts of the museum, and when I meet people, that's the first thing they say. They never forgot the, the display of the shoes. But we also have others. We have a railroad car of the type that was used for deportation. A boxcar, yeah. We have a barracks where many people who, those who were so-called fortunate enough not to be gassed upon arrival at Auschwitz could live this, you know, their, their horrible lives under starvation and work. And we have another iconic moment, which is a beautiful tower of faces of a pre-war Jewish community that had lived in a little part of Eastern Europe for 900 years and were wiped out in two days by mobile killing units. I mean, it's, it's one thing to hear you say it, but until you actually can go in the museum and see it and experience that, not just in real time, but with knowing that we're talking about real people, that makes the difference. And I think one of the things that is unique about our museum, we don't have interactivity, but it's still very powerful because the history was so well documented. This has got to be one but of the best. But you also have oral histories. Yes, but this has got to be one of the best documented crimes in history. So you have photographs, you have moving images, much of it taken by the perpetrators themselves. Yeah, they were proud of it. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting, this, this disconnect between the most heavily documented crime in history and the people who still deny it ever happened. Well, that's because denial really isn't a question about truth. It's really a manifestation of anti-Semitism. And it shows, you know, anti-Semitism has often been called the longest hatred. It's been around for several thousand years. It's not going away. And it just shows how easily it can morph into the present moment. So after the Holocaust, you see this new manifestation, which is to deny it or to minimize the truth of it. You have so many visitors to the museum, many of them young. What's your takeaway when you hear them come out of the museum? And it must give you... Uh, some great satisfaction to hear some of their comments. It is. And I have to say, when I walk through the museum and I see teenagers in groups, silent, reading. Not looking at their phones. Pausing. Can no I say phones. that again? Yes. Not looking at their phones. Yes. Yeah. That, to me, is so gratifying. I just watch their body language, and occasionally they will start whispering to each other about something they've seen. The other I'll just share with you, uh, one of the visitor quotes, we have comment books where people can write comments. And one of my favorites was from a few years ago. It was written in uh, handwriting of a high school student, you could tell, and it said something like, I came to Washington with my high school class expecting to learn about politics and government, but here I learned about humanity. And it was signed Mandy from Iowa City. And I think that speaks volumes about who we are and the impact we can have. Well, hopefully that's your branding message. Absolutely. You know, because 
it's not enough to learn a lesson. You have to be able to apply it. Right. So Ellie Wiesel, who founded the museum, had this vision. It was to be a living memorial, which meant it had to speak to the present and the future as much to, as to the past. So we want people to leave the exhibition and ask themselves, why did this happen? What could have been different? What could have prevented it? What would I have done? And then to go on and say, what will I do? Now. Exactly. Now, exactly. Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. places that I like to go when I go to Washington, I, uh, I go about once or twice a year, and, and some of it is for me because I'm fascinated by it, some of it's because as a journalist I reported on it, and some of it's just funny. Uh, it's the International Spy Museum. Yes, it does exist, and it's about to get bigger, and joining me now, the historian and curator, Vince Houghton. How are you, sir? Good. Thank you for having me. You've been there, what, about four years? About four years. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I remember some of the exhibits I mean, I go back, you know, to the Francis Gary Powers days, yeah. uh, the famous U-2 pilot, who's I know commemorated in there. Mm -hmm. uh, but spying these days is a very good friend of mine at, who works at the FBI. His concentration, of course, is cyber. And difficult to display that, because in the old days, the spying was like in cigarette cases right. and it was micro, microfilm or microfiche, you know, little spy cameras, and, you know, hidden microphones. You have all that. Absolutely. Yeah, right. well, and you're right about the fact that, you know, as, as technology changes, it becomes more and more difficult to, uh, to display what you consider a spy gadget or spy technology. But we're, we're doing what we can to figure out ways. It takes some creativity, uh, but it's always something that we're thinking about. How do we plan for the future of espionage? Right. I love it. Planning for the future yeah. of espionage as opposed to... Now, pretty soon you'll probably have an exhibit on the 2016 election. I would think so. We're going to let it play out uh, so we know a little bit more about it, but I can't imagine that we can ignore it, uh, certainly no matter no, what. Repeat after me. You can't ignore yes. it. Yes. Yeah, so no matter what turn, what happens, no matter what uh, final verdict is, we're going to have to cover it one way or the other because it's clear... Uh, Republican or Democrat, that the Russians did everything they could to try to influence uh, the outcome of the election. And a lot of that was cyber. A lot of it was cyber. A lot of it was what we call influence operations or information operations uh, from Facebook and Twitter and fake news and things like Pizzagate here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Are they still talking about Pizzagate? I don't know why, because the whole idea was a pedophilia ring in a basement of a restaurant that doesn't have a basement. Uh, so that, it seems supposedly Hillary Clinton was running. right. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's an indication of, of the lengths that people will go to, uh, particularly countries that don't like us very much, like Russia, to try to mess with us, to create chaos. I mean, part of the easy access problem, right, is that if you put it on the Web, people are going to believe it. Well, I mean, yeah, people see it on their Facebook feed. They assume that it's true because it went through whatever filters they think exist. Uh, and, and people well, are let's willing. stop it right there. What yeah. filters exist? Well, that's the problem is that there weren't a lot put in place. Are uh, there now? Well, Facebook is doing everything they can. Uh, Zuckerberg uh, been, been called in front of Congress to talk about the fact that— Well, that'll change things. Well, sure, you'd, you'd think maybe it wouldn't, but I, I, I think there's a public backlash to this as well. Uh, and people realize more than you might notice from looking at polling data or from what you see coming out of some of the newspapers or out of Washington, D.C., that people realize that they've been duped. Most people do. But, you know, there's public backlash, but there's such overload of information 
that people are just drowning in it. Well, and I think that's really an interesting concept because this is something the intelligence community has been dealing with since its very beginning, is this idea of separating what we call signals from noise. You have all this information coming in, and this is like Pearl Harbor is an example of this, right? We, we knew a whole lot about what the Japanese were doing, but it was very difficult to separate what is actionable intelligence right. from what is just nonsense, what is just noise. And so now we're faced with those very same difficulties of being inundated with information, whether it's coming from social media or real media, and how do we know what's true and what's not? Well, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, for me, I go back to, you mentioned, you know, Pearl Harbor, you know, Japanese... I go back to the Battle of Midway. Oh, absolutely. That, from an espionage point of view, one of the great stories of, of, of our times, because we had broken the Japanese code. We'd broken several Japanese codes, and what yeah. people don't realize is that the Japanese naval code, which was called JN-25, which is what we finally broke right before the Battle of Midway, yeah. was one of the most difficult codes. I mean, people talk about the Enigma all the time, right? Enigma was difficult. The Jan 25, we had no idea what machine it was used on. We'd never seen a machine. We had no idea how it was used. Right. And so American code breakers, a handful of them right here in Washington, were able to break that code. And the cool thing about that battle, I mean, if you can, read the books. Because not only did they break the code, and the Japanese didn't know we broke the code, we were able to get our ships out of Hawaii and by the time the Japanese thought they were heading to Hawaii to get our ships, we were behind them. Well, one of the great things, if you're American, uh, not so great if you're Japanese, about the Battle of Midway is that we didn't just destroy a lot of their important ships, but we were able to kill uh, most of their veteran pilots. And you know, when you, when you think about, you can always replace a ship. You can always build a new aircraft carrier. But training, training pilots, pilots that had been flying at the highest levels for years by that point was really what was the end, beginning of the end for the Japanese. I mean, probably the most decisive naval battle that I can think of in history. It's tough to look at ones that had a larger impact because the Japanese were, were constantly on the offensive until a battle that took place right before Midway, Coral Sea. Yeah. Coral Sea was basically a tie. At that point... Yeah, we, we lost a lot of ships too. Right, we lost a lot of ships too. Midway happens right after Coral Sea, and by Midway... That's the end of Japanese advances. Everything from that point to the end of the war was them going backwards. The thing, I mean, I, okay, I'm a military history geek, so you can, you can, oh, we, uh, talk you know all that. day. We'll talk yeah. all day. But the thing about Midway that drove me crazy, talk about timing, was when they had, when the Japanese pilots had to return to get fuel, and that's, them on the and deck. that's, yep. and that caught them on the deck. Yep. And that, that's, that's sometimes the luck of war. I mean, there, there was no magic about that. It was just really good timing. Uh, they had to go back and refuel and rearm, and that's when American dive bombers were able to catch them kind of with their pants down. You, can, yeah. you can't do a lot of fighting when you're on the deck getting fuel and getting bombs. And on that carrier, was that the Admiral's flagship? Well, they sunk four carriers, including yeah. the Admiral's flagship. Yeah. So that, that was a pretty decisive battle uh, for the Americans, and that right. really turned the tide of the Pacific War. But it all started, let's go yep. back full circle, with breaking the with code. With really good intelligence, breaking the code, and then a really great deception campaign. They, we were able to break the codes, but we didn't know exactly what island, because they were using codes to refer to the islands. And so the Americans decided, let's let out information that Midway was low on water, just in the clear, just kind of a radio back to Pearl Harbor saying, hey, look, we've got a problem, Midway is low on water. And then right the next day, the Japanese said, our target is low on water. Boom. We knew exactly that Midway was the target because we deceived the Japanese into uh, kind of tipping their hand about yeah. where their target was. From a gadget perspective, yeah. that's the other thing that, that freaks me out about all the different places 
you could conceal the technology to be able to affect what you needed. Well, sure. I mean, now it's endless. I mean, with miniaturization, with, with microprocessors becoming so small, uh, and with wireless technology, there's yeah. really no limitations to what something can be concealed as. I mean, the old adage, and you see these in mob movies or, or others, where the guy's wearing a wire under his shirt. You don't, you don't need it anymore. Yeah, that's unnecessary. I mean, you can fashion a, a covert listening device into just about anything. And the other thing is this. The alibi is over because our communities are so wired that I can't say I, I didn't go through the toll booth because you have a right. record of me going through the toll booth. I can't say I was here because you have a record of me there. Everybody's got digital records time-coded of everything. Well, I mean, this is something that's not new. I mean, the, the pendulum that swings between the ability to do intelligence and the ability to do counterintelligence yeah. has been since the beginning of time. And you can see the better we get at intelligence technologies, the better we're getting at counterintelligence technology. And it's kind of a cat and mouse cause and effect game with people developing this new technology to try to thwart spies and at the same time to do spying in the first place. And like any museum, it's dependent on great storytelling. That's the idea, and, right? And that's the deal. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. We've been talking about this throughout the show, about how you can, you know, get involved up close and personally and give back to people or destinations that need it the most. We were obviously talking about uh, the Anacostia Riverkeeper Project, and joining me now, the Riverkeeper herself. Good morning. <laughs> Emily Frank, how are you? Good, thank you. Explain exactly what you do, because, you know, America's waterways, if you look at it as, as, a, as a complete perspective... Uh, are not in great shape. And there have been some success stories. There have been some really good things to talk about it when communities take control and take them back. Um, is that the case with you guys? Yeah, Peter, you're exactly right. I mean, historically, when you think about our waterways, they were in the industrial superhighways before we had paved roads. And so, that's certainly the case here in D.C. Right. Ships and commerce and, and wharves and docks. And, and on the Anacostia River, we've had about 150 years of um, industrial use and abuse of the river. And neglect. So, and neglect. Yes, and neglect. Um, and the moniker, the Forgotten River, is something we're trying to forget and put in our past. And like many people, I think, before you got involved in this, you had no clue, right? You had no clue about about this situation being as important as it is. No, not really. I mean, all of our cities, especially our big urban cities, um, the nation's capital included, were focused internally. Um, so people know about Washington, D.C. for its politics, for its museums, but really not for its waterways. And we've got some beautiful waterways here. I mean, the waterways that I... Oh, look, we have a big waterway right in front of this hotel, don't we? It's, it's, yes. It's the Potomac. In Georgetown, you, got the, you still have the canals. We do, yeah. Um, the, the canals are not so much in use these days, but they, they were how we got goods and services and materials to the interior of the country. Um, on the Anacostia River, we also had some canals that led up to the capital. The Anacostia waterfront has gone a major uh, renovation, development down there. We've got national stadiums. So we're really seeing a turnaround, I think, from the interior of the cities to our water, our shorelines. And then there's, of course, the, the scientific approach in terms of, pol of pollution, not just the aesthetics. Right. I mean, a lot of, we have some visible pollution like trash that people see, but we also have legacy toxins in the river. We've got a couple Superfund sites. We've got fish that aren't safe to eat. Um, so we're really trying to, to shift the conversation to do some good projects and, and 
and get, you know, the D.C. government has been on board with this. Um, so we're really trying to clean up the river. Well, they're shifting the conversation, then they're shifting the situation. So yes. have you seen some progress? Yes. It has taken uh, many, many lawsuits and uh, use of EPA regulations and the Clean Water Act. But yes, we've seen great progress. Um, one of the goals as Riverkeeper is that we have the right to clean water. We have the right to clean swimmable, fishable water. And so um, I think we're getting really close to swimmable, too. And you have the equipment to do it. We're working on that. <laughs> we're, you know, Riverkeepers, we're small, nimble, we're citizen-driven, um, we're donation-driven. So and volunteer-driven. And volunteer-driven, And yes. actually, you know, if someone's coming to Washington, D.C., I said this earlier in the show, if they're coming to Washington, D.C., they can volunteer with you guys. They can. They can. We have cleanups all year round. Um, we clean up the shoreline, especially in front of some uh, the Anacostia River Festival, which is in April. We're very excited about that. So people coming for the Cherry Blossom Festival, they have a chance to come out, help us clean up our shoreline. We have educational boat tours we'd love for them to join and of course they can always donate and let's face it i'm going to say something quite self-serving it gets you out on the water oh my gosh best part of my job me too i mean i anytime you do not have to use an industrial strength spatula to get me to go to the water <laughs> i'm there awesome right? yeah so if someone comes to washington see mm -hmm. like staying here at the mandarin for example they can volunteer a morning and afternoon a weekend and go out with you guys they can they can and we love to work with groups like mandarin oriental because they are very focused on sustainability and being um, environmentally conscious and so to be able to engage their guests as well we'd love to have that opportunity i mean in washington dc it's it's not, not the most usual thing to say that the that a hotel is a waterfront hotel but the mandarin really is it is yeah washington channel is great we've got the wharf project now. Um, when I was a kid, I remember when it was, you know, one or two level buildings and we had uh, Hogate's and Phillips flagship there. And so it's it's kind of cool to see everybody come down to the water. So how can somebody volunteer? They can go online, check out our calendar. And the website is? The website is anacostiariverkeeper.org. And any experience necessary? None at all. You mean Just a willingness to me. get a little dirty and have some fun. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. One of the interesting things for me when I come to Washington, and I'm here basically almost once a month for all sorts of reasons, otherwise known as news, I want to visit different locations and... We think of Washington as monuments and museums. We think of it as, as, as great historical places. There are so many monuments people don't even know about. There's so many museums that people don't even know about. But there's something else, and it's right in front of us. It's called National Geographic. And at their building here in Washington, D.C., always a, there's always a rotating exhibit. Um, I always find it fascinating. What's dangerous to me, I always end up in the gift shop, and I always have to buy books. Um, and they're very good about that, about publishing books. I get good at buying them. 
But the bottom line is, it's the exhibits that are fascinating. And joining me now, the creative director of all those exhibitions, and I love the word global experiences, <laughs> Alan Parente. How are you? I'm great. How are you? So obviously, the exhibits go way beyond your building. That's true. Um, typically, we, we create exhibitions that started our building, but almost all of them then have uh, further life where they travel. They travel. Um, nationally and, and internationally. And being a member of National Geographic gets you a deal there. Uh, that's true. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the membership has a lot of benefits. Uh, one of them is uh, discounted uh, admission to the museum. Our museum um, both has temporary exhibitions, which do have a charge, but um, there's also a free section where we talk about National Geographic history, um, give you some background on the famous names, your Cousteaus, your Goodalls, your Bob Ballards, um, and all that. So that's always open to the public. And then our changing exhibitions um, are basically whatever our grantees, photographers, and writers are working on at this point. Well, you know, earlier in the, in the show, we, we talked about uh, the, the spy museum guys were on. We were talking about the, the Battle of Midway. Mm -hmm. And Bob Ballard, I mean, knows all about that because he was the guy who got down deep enough to see the, the aircraft carriers that were sunk. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Bob has been an explorer with us for, uh, for many, many years. In fact, um, coming this summer, um, we will have a uh, Titanic exhibition uh, based on uh, Dr. Ballard's work. It is um, Titanic, The Untold Story. And by the way, every time you think the Titanic story's been told, there's more. There is more. And this one is particularly interesting. Um, there's been recently uh, declassified uh, government stories about what uh, what Dr. Ballard was doing there. The Titanic uh, was originally a cover. Um, he was doing work for the Navy and looking for some nuclear submarines. Um, that was classified for a long time. Sunken nuclear submarines. Correct. You know, if you look at the secret history of Howard Hughes, you'll find that he built a ship called the Glomar Explorer. And, the, and there was a, a Soviet sub that broke up in the Pacific Ocean at a depth that we couldn't get to. So Howard Hughes built this ship to raise that Soviet sub, and the Soviets knew we were going there, and, and it was a race to see who could get to the sub first. It's fascinating stuff. I know. Yeah. But that's all what, was, that what Ballard was doing that too. So yeah, that's, that's uh, the, the story that we'll be telling there is a story of the ship and some of them that you know, but we also want to get into the untold story, which is you know this story about why and what he learned looking for those subs that helped him find the Titanic. Um, and then also yeah, stories Yeah, did he from, find the subs? He did. Okay. He did, although no one knew that for a very long time. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So it's it, it's about that, and then we also take that untold story thread, and we talk a little bit about um, some objects and uh, personal stories of people who were on the ship, um, the objects that were passed down through families from survivors. So some of the stories that people don't necessarily know as well as uh, some of the marquee stories that have been told again and again. And anybody who shows up at that exhibit and stands up and says, I'm the king of the world, is escorted from the building. Is that right? Maybe. <laughs> Unless they do it really well. <laughs> really? Okay. Oh, now you're, now, you're, now you're challenging me. Okay. <laughs> of all the exhibits that you're doing, so mm. much of them are interactive. Correct. I mean, to me, that's the key, mm -hmm. when you can actually immerse yourself. Yeah, I mean, we, we um, Geographic's very unique in that way. We, uh, we tell a lot of different stories. We tell a lot of different types of stories at, at, uh, in our exhibits. Um, we have artifact shows that, you know, have ancient treasures and photography shows, but we also love to do interactive and immersive, right? Uh, we always like to tell the story of the, um, the explorer alongside the subject, right? So that means going along with them on the journey. We want you to be there, feel like you're there, immerse yourself in the situation when the discovery was made. Right. And 
or when the discovery wasn't made that led you to another discovery. Correct. Right? Because I always ask, don't show me the product, show me the process. Mm -hmm. I mean, the people who do the work are equally as fascinating as the work we always we always find. I mean, you know, what, what causes someone to, you know, want to get out of the shark cage to go take a picture up close? Um, Would that be stupidity? Uh, I don't know. Mania sometimes. Um, Obsessiveness. Drive, obsessiveness. Yeah. Um, those are qualities that uh, that we look for with our but photographers and as explorers. As the I think. famous hockey great Wayne Gretzky once said, "You miss 100 percent of the shots you never take." So that's really what you got to <laughs> see, right? I agree. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, they always uh, are are striving to go further and figure out what uh, what those questions are. And, and the technology the that you have at your disposal now allows us to see this in unbelievable dimension. I think it's safe to say, and I think my next guest will probably confirm this, that Washington, D.C. is not just a destination anymore. It's not just the nation's capital anymore. It's a food destination. It's become a foodie lover's must-stop location, which I never would have said 10 years ago. It just never would have happened. And my next guest, the editor of Eater DC, Warren Rojas. Tell me you agree with that. Uh, I agree with part of it, Peter, because you could have started saying it 10 years ago. You probably even could have started saying it maybe 20 years ago, depending on where you were dining. But most but people didn't know about it. That, it right now, it's inarguably uh, you know, a very popular food city. We have... Um, Pockets of the area that are exploding, 14th Street, uh, Petworth, these have been um, the evolving wharf. over the wharf. Well, the wharf is the newest and the latest. But, but let's talk about where we are right now, because when the Mandarin opened up, right, when this hotel opened up, I always liked it because it was on the water. But there wasn't a lot of stuff around here when it first opened up. Now, watch out. Well, it's uh, you like being on the water. That's what's happening right now is that other local diners are very excited, and the restaurateurs that, that have noticed it as well are very excited about being on the water as well. That's why, as you mentioned, the wharf right down the road here in South, in South uh, at the District Wharf um, has many new restaurants and many more to come that are going to be staggered opening over the next few years, uh, as well as on the other side in Southeast on Navy Yard, which has you know, blossomed with the stadium and a whole coterie of restaurants that have evolved down there as well. And then on the other side, you got National Harbor. And National Harbor, sure, in, in uh, Maryland has become its own mini destination. Now it has the casino, but it also has many restaurants, mostly chains, but, you know, that that's not too bad, right? No, I, I can live with some of them. It all depends on what time of the day and how and how, <laughs> how hungry I am. That's right. All right, but let's get down to specifics here about where we are right here at the Mandarin. What's happening in this neighborhood? Well, uh, you know, this... Uh, hotel uh, landed on many diners maps um, years ago when uh, chef Eric Zebold was here and uh, he has now since moved on to uh, open two restaurants over in Shaw by the convention center uh, Michelin starred restaurants at that Metier and kinship but this part of the city you're seeing and this is evidenced uh, you know just down the street here the Museum of the Bible has just opened up chef from Equinox Todd Gray who's been, who's fed many presidents and has been around for 20-odd years, now a champion of the vegan dining scene, took over that hotel and decided to put in an Israeli-style restaurant with flatbreads, fresh-made hummus, things that he picked up during a two-week tour of Israel last March. He and his wife, Ellen, said, yes, we can absolutely do this. They'd been doing a vegan brunch at another hotel downtown and said, absolutely, we can build our brand and feed people something better than just pre-wrapped pre sandwiches and such. So... 
again, award-winning chef, just deciding to take on a new challenge, and everyone gets more places to eat. In terms of the food explosion, what's been the biggest surprise to you? Because we've seen the food truck revolution, we've seen you know the, the boom in ethnic cuisine, and of course Washington is a natural for that. Mm -hmm. What's the surprise for you? Very little surprises me because I'm from the area, so it's just been you know everything comes in waves. Uh, you know, in the suburbs you still have uh, a predominantly, you know, a very strong. Uh, constituency of South American, the Peruvian chicken places, the, the Vietnamese pho houses. Um, in the city, it just depends on where you are because certain people have decided to plant their flags in different areas. There are Haider Karoum, uh, chef at uh, Proof for many years, just opened his new place in Navy Yard called Chloe. He's doing food from all around the world that you know he's developed over years. So he's not just doing modern American or Lebanese this. He's having fun with all of it because it's his first place. He surrounded himself with a team of people that he's worked with for years, and he's saying, come see me. I'll surprise you every night. So people are loving that. Are you seeing restaurants doing that in terms of the surprise? It's not just a set menu. They're doing menus every day. To some extent, uh, sure. That's, I think that's been... Uh I think that's been part of the DC dining experience. Like you said, that's evolved over the past decade. Chefs have maybe moved away from the more, the fancier tasting menu style, you know, preset white tablecloth, all those, those places certainly exist, but they're more interested in, you know, for lack of a better term, the farm to table. They like sourcing, meeting with their producers that morning and figuring out today it's beets, uh, radishes and fish. Tomorrow it's chicken, kumquats and wh whatever comes off the truck. So they don't want to be pigeonholed by what's happening. And diners are expecting that, too. They're no longer, you know, some people will turn up their nose at tomatoes out of season. They won't eat <laughs> something that they know shouldn't be on the menu because they know it's from, you know, California or it's shipped from elsewhere. And they are for, you know, locavores to the extent that, yeah, no, they want to celebrate what's happening here in the Mid-Atlantic. Locavores, I like that. All right. Are you a locavore? I'm an omnivore. Animal, mineral, or vegetable. I'm happy to give it a try. Keep you away from the kitchen. That's right. Okay, watch out. Back up. Uh, one of the things I've noticed in the hotel business is that a number of hotels never really paid attention to room service. They never really paid attention to the quality of the food, or the, I should say the, the variety of the food. It was just, you know, grilled cheese and cheeseburgers and maybe a prime rib and, you know, that's it. Or they got rid of room service altogether. You see Hilton, the bigger hotels at Hilton now, they've gotten rid of room service. It's mm -hmm. now grab and go down the lobby, right? This hotel is 24-hour room service with a very full menu, so you can still find it. Yeah, and uh, I think by design, hotels have to have those safe, you know, the roast chicken, the, the, burger, the gourmet burger, these types of things that people from anywhere in the country and or from around the world can point to and say, okay, I don't need an education. I, I, I know what this is, you know, a, a nice uh, tomato pizza, a nice what have you. Um, room service, uh, I think one of the newer hotels that just opened in the Adams Morgan, the Lion Hotel, which has been coming I for heard about years. that place. yeah. They have room service, but they're doing it. It's actually two major chefs are moving in, or have moved in there. Eric Bruner Yang, who started Maketo, he's got an all-day restaurant in the lobby right now that does provide room service including food that you might have in a Taiwanese restaurant because he's all about bringing the world to your table. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Spike Jur, the uh, James Beard Award-winning chef from Baltimore, his new restaurant, Rex Progress, is opening in a few weeks. He's the default caterer for anything. So if you have your wedding at the line, 
you're going to have Spike Yerd cooking your food for you. And to the icing on the cake, you mentioned room service. They have a roving cocktail cart, which I'm not sure if Uh-oh. that if that Stand has rolled back. out yet. But that's supposed to circle from floor to floor, providing you know classic cocktails as well as signature drinks from. This reminds me of my college dormitory. Well, it, I think that's kind of what they're going for. The they, roving cocktail. They cart. want a party uh, in every room. Um, so yeah, you you stay at the line. You get two award-winning chefs and a roving cocktail cart. <laughs> When you think about it, it's a brilliant idea. It raises some other liability issues, but the point is... Well, I think what happens at the line stays at the line. I think they're, they're, one the, of those, they're the New Vegas. The rolling cocktail cart. Wow. Hey, how'd you get injured? I was hit by the roving cocktail cart. Yeah, I got it. Your biggest surprise restaurant that's opened in the last year. That, I don't know that I'm, again, surprised. I mean, I'm, I'm very much excited about several new restaurants. In fact, one that uh, just opened late last year, Maidan, which opened over uh, in the Manhattan Laundry Building. It's the second restaurant from Compass Rose founder. That Compass Rose is eclectic, has a very global theme. Maidan, the uh, founders narrowed it down to Syria, Tunisia, the Middle East, North Africa, and their selling point is the entire restaurant. Everything is cooked over a giant open hearth. So it's a big flaming pit wow. right in the middle of the restaurant. They hang meats, they grill vegetables, they cook fish. So basically it's great theater too. Absolutely. be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant When I was a kid, on my very first trip to Europe, I remember my mother taking me by the hand and walking me into the Carlton Hotel in Cannes and holding me firmly by the hand as we walked by the concierge desk. And she pointed at the concierge and said, don't go there. Don't ask them anything. Because in those days, first of all, she was terrified of the word concierge. And second of all, when you checked out of the hotel in those days, you got two bills. You got your hotel bill and you got your concierge bill. It was a separate fiefdom. And so she was terrified of it. Obviously, we've come a long way from that. Uh, And I always stop at the concierge desk now very very, very first time I get there, especially if they're wearing the gold keys, otherwise known as clay door, because these guys are classically trained and they actually know the cities in which they live. The biggest problem I have is so many hotels don't understand this and they give some 19-year-old a hat and call him a concierge and it doesn't exactly work that way. And the person who would know that very well is the chef concierge right here at the Mandarin. Lynn Jason, how are you, Lynn? Good morning and thank you so much for having me and for that nice introduction. But it's true. I see, I do stop and say hello to you now. Absolutely. And you and I go back a long time along with your partner in crime, Jack, who uh, I go back even longer with him. It's crazy. I think he's the longest serving concierge in the city. He is. And we are lucky to have him. Absolutely. So let's get down to a definition of terms, okay? What do you do? We help. We make things better. We answer questions. We sort through facts and information. You can ask Google or Siri or Alexa anything in the world, and they'll just give you a bunch of answers, but we're going to give you the answer that fits you. Well, you know what it is? I think it's answer with perspective. Correct. Uh, Because I think that the way that concierges could really score big is if you change your title from concierge to, I know a guy. (laughs) Good one. Because that's really what it gets down to. It's your word of mouth Rolodex. Uh, I'm, I'm dating myself with the word Rolodex, but it's true. I mean, 
There's a, you have a network of information where if somebody needs a shoelace, you know a guy. If somebody needs theater tickets, which is what most people think that's all you do, you know a guy. If somebody needs to charter a plane to go to Brazil, you know a guy. Or a girl. Thank you. Thank you for. You know, <laughs> but we do. Yeah. We have we have a depth and breadth of contacts, people we can call. I had a guest one time. It was Easter Sunday night after eight o'clock p.m. Who realized that she did not have a jacket to wear to the White House on Monday morning, and it took a lot of phone calls. But I was able to get Dior to open up and be here by six thirty a.m. Yeah, that the guy was, was huge. The, the actual real name was Murray Dior, but it was, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No. No, but uh, it, it was it was huge because it, it takes a lot, but we did it. Well, you know, the whole idea is local knowledge. Correct. Right, mm-hmm. but it's not. But 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 it goes beyond that. Doesn't it? It's not local knowledge because one of the guys or women that you know might be a concierge in Phnom Penh who knows a guy. Correct. We have an international network of uh, colleagues that we call upon. We meet twice a year domestically and internationally, just so we get together and know each other and learn best practices and share information. What's the craziest request you've ever gotten that you actually were able to handle? Well, I did have a VIP celebrity that wanted a mink coat tomorrow in a size 22. A size 22? Yes. I'm, okay, so that was DJ Khaled, was it? No, no, no. no, no. I don't. I, I know you can't reveal names, names, but where'd you but, find a mink coat size twenty uh, two? Flew in from Saks Fifth Avenue in New York because it didn't exist in my market. But with my network, I was able to find it. Okay, and they were happy. I, they, I once had a prince from the Middle East that wanted to play ping pong. You know, that was a tough one, too, because Amazon now didn't exist. So we had to send somebody over to Sports Authority, which also doesn't exist, to pick up a ping pong table. <laughs> and then at the time, they weren't even already assembled. So we had to get a team of engineers ready to assemble. But we were good All to right, go so the in biggest two question hours. I have, so the, does the ping pong table still exist? They offered it to me, actually, but I don't have space in my house. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but the prince got to play ping pong. He did. I mean, the bottom line is... If you don't know the answer, the beautiful thing about your network is somebody else does. We'll find it. I, I love the tough requests, so bring those on. Okay. I love the tough requests, too. I mean, the, the bottom line is, at the end of the day, it's not an intimidating experience to go to the concierge because what you're going to end up getting is a conversation. I wish that I could fly into the sky. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. <laughs> The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. My next guest knows a little bit about cooking. That's why they call him the, uh, the chef here at the Mandarin Oriental. Uh, Stefan Kaut, how are you, sir? Good morning, sir. Very but well. you and I, you know, go back to when you were in New Orleans at the yes. Roosevelt, which is the former Fairmont. Yes. Right? Completely different kind of cuisine. Very different. Yes. Right? Very so different. So how much of that is incorporated into your menu here at the Mandarin? Uh, not yet really anything because I just started in October. Yeah. I've been here a little bit over three months. And uh, so we're working on the pro- progress to create some new dishes with 
also coming more not really from New Orleans. My background is classical French. Well, you were trained in the classical French way, yes. you're, but you're a German master chef. I'm a German master chef. That's yes. correct, sir. So does that, does that mean like if you're a German master chef and you're classically trained in France, or that means a lot of butter and a lot of pretzels? Yeah, more a lot of butter, not so much pretzels. <laughs> <laughs> but you know where we're going. Yeah, and the yeah. French still don't like it. <laughs> no. And, and, and you're light on the schnitzel. <laughs> oh, yes. I love that. I see. I knew that. <laughs> so what are you trying to introduce in, uh, on your menus here at the hotel to, well, to let the guests experience some of stuff that maybe they haven't done before? Yeah. First of all, we want to go with local ingredients, what's important to us. You know, this farm and table program and all that but stuff. But everybody and says then, that. Yeah, but, uh, but it's, for us, it's really a good point because we have Maryland, we have uh, Virginia, and then we have also uh, Washington, D.C., District of Columbia, where there's a lot of farmers and stuff, and uh, we can really go into that, but using the French techniques like the braising part, doing braised beef cheeks and things like that, and then also uh, pensiered fish, freshest we can get from here. Here, the fish is very different what we get in New Orleans or in well, Europe. You, you, you are know? you getting your fish here from the Chesapeake? <clears throat> we try to, yes, yeah. absolutely. And the shellfish, too? Yes, and then more shellfish, more maybe Maryland and that area. You well, know? that's Chesapeake, and yeah. Had, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and we had the, uh, I'm not so sorry, I'm not so familiar with the areas yet, but I will get there. And uh, like you know, New Orleans the golf was right around the corner. So, so uh, is it safe to say that none of your dishes will be blackened? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> also, I brought some blackened seasoning with me. <laughs> you snuck some out of New Orleans. Yeah. Exactly. No, no, there's a couple of things. Over, I lived in New Orleans nine years, so there's things you pick up and you really start liking, you know. Like? Uh, good gumbo. There's nothing wrong with that. Good seafood gumbo or even uh, the... Uh, Different, the blackened item what they had, you know, it's just amazing what you can do just with the seasoning. Well, you know, you talk about the gumbo. Will, will the Mandarin be introducing a gumbo? We actually had one on New Year's Eve. You did <laughs> seafood gumbo. And yes. how did it do? You know, oh, great! People loved it. Yeah. So when you when you talk about sourcing, and that's really your challenge, not as much anymore, but every chef wants to source locally. Yeah. Um, where are you getting, you know, your vegetables from? Where are you getting your seafood from? Where are you getting your beef from? Uh, that's all where we have to really look at the farms, you know. We have uh, several we, uh, we already picked out, like the um, Willows Ford Farm, and uh, some we're working right now trying to get beef purveyors we have incorporated with our vendor program, but they also have sources like grass-fed beef. We would like to have a hamburger grass-fed or uh, maybe a bison, you know, something what is uh, maybe coming from uh, the uh, Modi area of um, Pennsylvania, you know, yeah. and uh, what's also not so so far away. So we, and then fish-wise, uh, either, like you say, Chesapeake, or we have the fish market down at the wharf, and they, uh, they're going to have a good variety of fish as well for us. Well, know? the wharf is really coming into its own, isn't it? It does, yeah, and the good thing is uh, with us being in the southwest, we were the first place here. We were the first luxury hotel in this area, now the wharf is coming, going to bring us a lot of new guests where they're going <clears> to <throat> find out in the wharf and then they will <clears throat> still come back to us. Is there something, you know, and maybe it's too soon to talk about this, but you could also go back to your days in New Orleans. Is there something you, and I always like to ask this of chefs, is there something that you put on your menu that you thinks that you thought, wow, everybody's going to like this dish. They're not going to get enough of it and it tanked. Nobody wanted it. Or is there a dish that you figure, well, I guess I got to put it on, but who's going to eat this? And everybody went nuts for it. No, you, <clears throat> and you're right. We had uh, the experience for 
from here, unfortunately, I can't talk much because the menus were all done before me, yeah. and we're going to start uh, working on the new menus right now. But um, okay, then let's like talk in, about in New Orleans. We had uh, we put Brussels sprout fried with <coughs> with a specific dressing on. We thought this is not going to fly, and they went off the shelf. It was just unbelievable. There was just one time, and it started maybe eight, ten years ago, where Brussels sprouts got so popular, and everybody then put it on the menu, and now they're dying again. Well, you know? I, I'm I'm glad to hear that because I hated Brussels sprouts when I was a kid, and I hate them now. Okay? It's like lima beans. Enough. If you put a dish with lima beans on it, I'm not showing up. <laughs> That's the thing when you grow up with this stuff. Listen, you know, when I was like growing up, my mother would make lima beans, and she'd make me eat them, saying, think of all the starving children in India. And I, I, had, and I had one lima bean. I know why they're starving in India, because they don't want to eat this either. You know? I mean, it's like... No, I hear what you say. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. And you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi. I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow the Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.